Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. Testing. All right. Oh, screw it. We good now? All right, there we go. (laughs) Well, with that being said, (laughs) my name is Brendan, and I want to welcome you to the end of all things. And as I've mentioned, that we, this morning, we are going to be talking about the end times. The end of all things is at hand. We've been going through a series on the book of First Peter, and Peter begins this section with saying, the end of all things is near. And if you're new here, you're wondering, what on earth did I just walk into? <laughs> but it's okay. I share your reservations. I'm a bit anxious about entering these types of conversations. In fact, people learn that I study theology, and one of the first things that they decide to ask me is, are we in the end times? It could be around a dinner table or at a construction site, but people become consumed with, are we in the end times? And this is actually goes beyond just church uh, to the wider culture. People are obsessed with the apocalypse, the end of all things, the end of the world. And my honest thought is, so what? What difference does it make? How is that impacting my everyday life? Am I becoming a person that's filled with anxiety, or am I becoming a person that's filled with hope? And so when it comes to the study that we call eschatology, which basically is a big fancy word for saying the study of the end of all things, there's two unhelpful ways of approaching it. One, maybe you've heard this phrase, someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. They become so fixated and enamored with heaven, the future reality, that they become completely irrelevant in the present. But the flip side is also true, that we could become so earthly good that we no longer become heavenly minded that we become so fixated with building our lives in the present that we've lost sight of eternity, that we bought into the myth of progress that if I can just improve my life now, I can move it towards a utopia. Yet anxiety is rising, and it doesn't seem like everything is always up and to the right. So how do we look at the end of all things? Well, here we come to the book of Peter, And Peter is writing this to a group of Christians spread out, facing persecution, real problems in their everyday life. And he says, I want you to keep eternity in mind. And so as we look at this text this morning, it begins, the end of all things is at hand. And the final part in verse 11 says that in everything, God may be glorified. And in the middle, is this beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a loving community 
to love in a countercultural way. And so our big idea from this morning is that the end of all things propels us to be a people who love in the midst of all things. In the words of Gordon Fee, the church is an end-time community whose members live in the present as those stamped with eternity. We are called to be a beautiful picture of what eternity will look like. We are called to be this end-time community, and this shapes our entire lives. And so with that being said, uh, where we're going this morning is we're walking through 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. So if you want to flip that open. And we're going to look at what is Peter talking about, the end of all things, trying to grasp with that. Uh, if you're like me, you often come in the Bible with a lot of questions. And so we're going to walk through some of that. And then we're going to try and become really helpful, really practical. How does that actually shape our everyday lives? So I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to walk through our text this morning. Jesus, we come before you and we recognize that um, when we look at the end of the world, we're confronted with our own finite nature. And the challenge that it can be to walk through a topic like this, and yet we recognize that we want to become more like you, that in the end, you will be glorified and lifted up. So we pray that you can work in our hearts to allow us to be drawn towards you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. And this is how the ESV translates it. The NIV says, The end of all things is near. So what is it? Is it the end of all things is now? Or is the end of all things still to come? Yes. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> To really grasp with this, we need to understand what is someone in the first century Jew, you know, what are they thinking about? How do they understand this concept? And then how does Jesus change and adapt and build off of that? And so if you were a Jew in the first century, there you have this idea of time. Time was divided into two ages. So we have the first diagram that comes up. And so the first age is the old age, or the age that we currently live in, and that is characterized by sin, death, and Satan, and oppression. And before this, in the passage that was talked about before, uh, Peter talks about the time of the Gentiles, and he lists these vices that, that are occurring in the time of the Gentiles. So this is the current age. Now, as a Jew, you had this hope through the prophetic literature, this hope of the Messiah and the Spirit of God coming to, to liberate them from oppression and to bring in the rule of God here on earth. And this is what is called the age to come, which is characterized by the knowledge of God, peace, justice, and joy, that this is what it looks like, the age to come where God is revealed as king. But here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus comes and what he does is he takes the future age and he brings it into the present. If we can go to the next slide. That we see at the cross, Jesus defeats evil and the kingdom of darkness is dethroned. And so we see the kingdom of God breaking into the very present age. And that means that we live in this, this contrast. 
between the, this current age and being part of the age to come. And so we see Jesus come, defeat sin and de- Satan on the cross. And we also see that the Spirit of God is poured out on his people. That at the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes Joel, and he says, you know, the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh in the end of times, in the end times. And so the end has been brought into the present. And so there's this tension that we live with. And we see this in the letter from 1 Peter. In verse 1 to 20, uh, Peter talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. At the same time, Peter also says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has come at the end of the last times, and yet Jesus will come again to put all things right. And so that means that we live in that current tension in between those ages. And so how do we live as a sojourner, people stamped with eternity, living in our current time? Well, there's an example to help get our minds around this is during World War II, there became this decisive battle, which would be called D-Day. Then on the beaches of Normandy, the Allies won this decisive battle. And that was the beginning of the end of the war. Yet, the war in Europe did not end for months, almost a year later, as we see them working through to move towards the final end when justice was able to reign. And so you see the soldiers move through after this decisive battle has been won, before final victory is accomplished. And so we live in that tension. The difference is our battle is not against flesh and blood, but we are called to be the people of God, reflecting the values of God in this current age. All right, hopefully that will stop. Do you want me to switch mics? Okay. All right, it's better. (laughs) So, how do we live as people stamped with eternity? So the end of all things propels us to love in the midst of all things. We are called, first, to love persistently in the face of opposition. So picking up in the second half of this verse, where Peter says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so what he's saying is, do not become anxious about what you are currently facing. You know, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, be in a posture of prayer. Because when we are in a posture of prayer, we are reminded of who God is and how the story ends. This echoes the words of Jesus whenever he talks about the end of all things. He always tells his disciples, be alert, be aware, be in a posture of prayer. And then we come to verse 8, where Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
So in light of the end, our response is to be a community of love. And here he says the reason is because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, when I read this, I had a lot of questions. Does this mean that if I am a loving person, God will forgive me of my sins? Or does this mean because God is ultimately loving, he'll just overlook the bad things that I do? But it seems in this context, what Peter is talking about is that love covers over the sins of others within a community. And he actually quotes from Proverbs 10, 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. My next thought was, yeah, Peter, but does that mean we just neglect the wrongdoing of others? Does that mean we just give up on the idea of justice? Does that mean we just kind of sweep the bad things under the rug? I don't think that's what Peter is talking about. But as a way to help illustrate this, recently I was reading this book, which is called Man's Search for Meaning. And the author, his name is Viktor Frankl. And so he was in a Nazi internment camp. He's a psychologist. And so he's going through this horrific experience. But he's also kind of has this, you know, theory of counseling that he's trying to work out in the midst of a Nazi internment camp. And he's kind of psychoanalyzing the other prisoners, trying to, you know, see how they respond as he himself is going through the very suffering that they are going through. And he tells these horrific stories. And he says, you know, people are in this camp and they are stripped from absolutely everything. All their possessions. In fact, they shave them completely just to show that they have nothing left. But he said everyone had one thing that could never be taken from them. is how they were going to respond to suffering. And he said the amazing thing was how people responded. He said some people that faced this horrific opposition became to echo that to other prisoners. In fact, some of the most brutal things were done from one prisoner to another. But he said on the flip side, there was also such a beauty of prisoners that came together to love one another. And they shared this story in the very end. When the allies come and liberate them from this camp, you see these two responses. This one guy, he's free, and now he's walking through the, the fields in Germany, and he just starts destroying crops. And the one guy's like, why are you doing that? And he said, you know, I have suffered, so something else has to suffer. But that suffering shaped him, hardened his heart. On the flip side, we see these other prisoners, and there was one guard who showed them some level of mercy during their time there. And so when the allies come, they actually hid the guard, and they waited until they knew that that guard would not be mistreated in the way that they were mistreated before they finally would reveal that guard to the allies. See, love is not opposed to justice, but forgiveness must precede justice. Timothy Keller, he wrote this wonderful article in the New York Times as a Christian writing to, you know, our, our world. And he wrestles with this question, you know, is forgiveness opposed to justice? And his response was that forgiveness must precede justice. Because without forgiveness, what our pursuit is not justice, it's vengeance. And so to be a loving community does not ignore the sin or brokenness around us, but it's how are we going to respond 
are we going to allow those things that happen to us? Obviously, we're not in the same situation as what I described in that example. But we do face opposition, where we have to hold to the values that might not be popular in our culture, that you might get pushed back, that you might experience hurt and pain from the very people that you love. But we are still faced with that choice. Are we going to be a community that echoes that hatred back to one another? Or are we going to be a community that echoes the love that we receive from God? It's not an easy call, but this is what it looks like to be God's contrastive community in our world. And so secondly, we are called to love sacrificially for the sake of others. Picking up in verse 9, Peter says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves. We are called to be a community that's others-focused, to not approach our community with what can I get from them, but how can I give and serve and love. And here's the irony of preaching a text like this is there's probably going to be an opportunity for me to have to apply it. (laughs) As I was writing in a coffee shop earlier this week on this very verse, there became an opportunity to serve someone. And my initial thought was, somebody else should do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too busy. This is important. And then realizing, wow, we really need God's grace to see beyond ourselves to the needs of others. And not just seeing the needs, but actually have the heart of willing to serve them. To be hospitable without grumbling. It's that heart posture to serve others. And this reminds me of uh, a book that I've read. I would say this is the book that has shaped my life the most outside of the Bible. And it's a book called The Reformed Pastor. And yet I have not finished the book. And I don't even know if I will ever finish it in my life. But it was... Part of it was the content, and the other part of it was the timing. I am you know, just the end of finishing Bible college and trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to go? What are the ministry opportunities in front of me? And I, was ask, I had a few options. And so I was asking the question, you know, is this opportunity in line with my personal calling? Will I be able to utilize my gifts here? Are they going to pay me enough to live in Vancouver? You know, very practical <laughs> things that I was thinking about. And I remember reading this book at the time. And the book is written by Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan pastor in the 17th century. And he was writing to other church leaders. And he said, he was very aggressive. He said, do not get into ministry to try and find your own self-worth, to try and collect a paycheck, to try and become relevant. He says, you get into ministry because you love the sheep. And I realized I'd been asking the wrong questions. The real question was, who was God calling me to love in that season? And when I asked that question, the decision became very clear. And for me, this has become a decision which I filter a lot of my large life decisions through. You know, for JC and I moving from Vancouver here to Edmonton, switching different jobs, I've always tried to ask this question, God, who are you calling me to love in this season because the rest of the things seem to fall in place beyond that. And so for you, for yourself, 
who is God calling you to love in this season? Who's that, that person or that group of people? You know, whether it be in this room or within our families, our workplaces, our community, who is God calling you to love in this season? And here's the amazing thing. God not only calls us to love people, but he actually equips and empowers us to be able to accomplish that. So thirdly, we find is that we are called to love from what we have received. Peter says, as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So God has not only called us to love others, but he's equipped us to do that. And these are what we talk about, gifts from the Holy Spirit. There's gifts of prophecy, which is to speak for the purpose of building up others. Gifts of service, the ability to use what we have to serve others, open our home and our table. And we do this from what we have received. That we do this in the strength that God has provided us. That we are actually stewards. We're not owners. We're stewarding what God has given us to bless others. This is what grace looks like. In the words of Dallas Willard, grace is God acting in my life to accomplish what I could not accomplish on my own. And so when I was a preteen, uh, my family, we joined this church plant. And they met in a movie theater, and they tried to do church, you know, a little bit differently be a little bit edgy. It was a really unique experience. But one Sunday, they did what was called a reverse tithe. It's quite radical. They took all the money of that month that would have been tithed, and they put it in envelopes, and they put it under people's seats. It was like, it was like the Oprah show. Like, look under your seat. <laughs> a car. It's more like 20 bucks. <laughs> but they actually took all the money that would have been given to the church, and they gave it to the people. And he said, take that and bless your community. And in three weeks, we're going to come together and hear how God used that money. And it was absolutely amazing. I remember during that time, I had a hockey tournament in Kelowna. And so we went there, and my dad had a friend that he had known, you know, for a long time growing up, who had moved there. And so they started to connect uh, for, for lunch. I remember we were talking to him, and uh, he was just sharing how his life is going. And he just, yeah, I just got laid off. And he said, I'm actually really, you know, anxious about being able to provide for my family. He had three young daughters and wife. And he said, you know, I was really feeling that financial burden. And my dad's sitting there <laughs> with that $100 in his wallet. And he, and he told him the story, the reverse tithe. He said, I feel like God is calling me to give you this money. And in that moment, he, like, teared up. And it was just amazing to see that God had empowered my dad to be able to be generous for him. And he, I mean, $100 is nice, but it's not a ton of money. But for him, it was the reminder that God is faithful to provide for him, even in the midst of difficult situations. And the most amazing thing is when that church came back together and we heard the stories, there were lots of people in that congregation that actually needed that money to fix their car, to, you know, make rent on time. But they actually chose to take that very money and bless other people. And this is such a picture of the gift of God, that God gives us gifts to bless other people beyond our own capacity. That because God is generous in 
you know, giving grace to us, that we get to be a channel of that grace and blessing to one another and the world. And so for us in this room, that God's called us, God's equipped us, that through his spirit, it actually given us gifts and abilities. And so what would it look like for us to identify those gifts, the way that God wants to speak through us, and to encourage us to actually bless other people? You know, what does it look like to hear from God and to give a word of encouragement to someone else? What does it look like to open up your table to someone uh, and share a meal who is never going to pay you back for that meal? What's it look like to, to be generous to families and to offer to babysit their kids, to give them a night out? What does it look like to use the gifts and abilities and resources that we have that we've received from God to bless one another, to be a picture of God's kingdom breaking in to our present everyday life? And this leads to the end of this passage. In the final part of this verse, in verse 11, Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Peter, he breaks into doxology and praise. The end, and this is why it's so important, the end of all things is the worship of God. Then we look at all of history, the final chapters of Scripture in Revelation 21, 22, where we see the new heavens and new earth breaking in. What is it about? It's about the worship of God. That God has called and redeemed a people to become worshipers. This is the goal of redemption. Then we look at our, the good creator of the world, who has rightfully created the world, and has rescued and healed it from the brokenness, has finally receives the praise that he deserves. For us, this is it. the worship of God is seen in the service of others. That as we learn to serve others, we do it for the purpose of worshiping and bringing glory to God. Our staff has been reading through this book called Canoeing Through the Mountains. And it's how to lead in uncertain times. And the author, uh, Todd, can't say his last name, so I won't. <laughs> uh, he summarizes it so well. He says, the goal of the Christian faith is not simply to become more loving community, but to be a community of people who participate in God's mission to heal the world by reestablishing his living reign on earth as it is in heaven. That as we move towards the worship of God in all things, we become a community of love. So what does it look like for us to adopt that posture of serving for the purpose of worship? How does that shape the way that we approach worship as a community? That worship is the songs that we sing, but also it's the life that we live. It's the things, it's the ways that we serve one another that points people towards the reality of eternity. And so we've gone through some pretty crazy ways to love. That we are to love persistently in the face of opposition. We are to love and be others-focused. We are to love from what we've received from God. And we are to love for the purpose of worship. How on earth do we love in this way? Well, it's through Jesus. That we have to love through Jesus. Peter, earlier, he talks about it this way. 
in reference to Jesus. He said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judge justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so by his wounds, you have been healed. That Jesus loved persistently in the face of opposition. When he's reviled, he did not allow that hatred to shape him, but he actually became the one that absorbed it and echoed grace and, and love. We also see that Jesus was others-focused. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve others. We also see that Jesus lives out perfectly what it looks like to walk in dependence upon the Father. That Jesus says, I entrust myself to him who judges justly. That Jesus demonstrates the life that looks like to be in full dependence on the, on the Father, walking in the power of the Spirit. And finally, we see the life of Jesus points to the worship of the Father that everything that Jesus did points us to the goodness of God. And so here's the reality, is that we are called to be a community that lives in the present in light of the future. That in light of the end of all things, we are called to be a people who love persistently in the midst of all things. That this is to be the way that we are shaped as a community to be a community that lives in the present that points people to the goodness of God's future reality. This is the picture of the people of God living on the mission of God. And so as we move into a final time of response, uh, I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, and we just want to follow the, you know, the response of the passage. And so we're going to take a few moments, and I want us to be able to listen from God. Because I feel that the Spirit helps lead us into application better than I can or myself. But I want you to listen, and we're going to ask two questions. The first question is, who is God calling me to love? And see, if God is going to reveal a name of a person, someone maybe in this room, someone you know, that you know, who is God specifically calling me to love this morning? And the second question is, how has God equipped me to love them? Maybe God has a word for you to encourage that person. Maybe there's a specific way that God is encouraging you to open your home or your life or to be generous to that person. But just, we want to be open to hear how the Spirit wants to lead us as a community, how the Spirit wants to guide us, and how the Spirit wants to empower us to love one another. And so we're just going to take a few moments. I'll pray, and then I want you to listen to hear from God. And then we're just going to respond in worship uh, to praising God for what he deserves. Jesus, we come before you. We thank you for what you've accomplished in the past. We thank you for the way you continue to transform us in the present. And we thank you for the way that you've shaped our hope for the future. We desire to be your people, empowered by your spirit. So God, we just pray as we come as a community with our hands open that you reveal the ways that you want us to love one another and to love our community. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.
Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.